Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. Well, today I am going to be finishing up my series on Willa Cather. Um, so if you've been listening along, I've looked at uh, all of the early works of Willa Cather up to her 1923 Pulitzer Prize winning novel, One of Ours. That's her, her great war novel. Um, and we've been looking at that for the past two episodes. I'm going to have a few final words to say about One of Ours and then just, just kind of wrap up my, my final thoughts on this series of Catherine's novel. Um, it's a really great volume of her works, the Library of America edition of her early novels and stories. It's, it's quite a bargain, actually. And it's one thing I don't talk too much about in this podcast. But one of the reasons I like the Library of America is is it is a real bargain uh, for book collectors, I guess. I, I don't know if some people maybe don't like to have three or four or five novels in one uh, volume, but if, if you don't mind that, um, you get... So if you're a subscriber to the Library of America, you get this edition for $25, and you're getting one, two, three, five books, five book length. Um, so about $5 each book. If you were to buy those books individually, probably cost... 15 or $20 each. So it's, it's really um, a bargain. Of course, if you if you read online, a lot of these books are public domain now, so you can just, just download them. But if, you, if you're sort of a book collector, I think these are really nice. Now, on the other hand, other times with longer books, you don't get as many in one volume, right? Like I'm thinking about doing Theodore Dreiser's American Tragedy. Next, that's one book in and, and there, you probably could get it cheaper in other, other places. But uh, I think uh, on average, it adds up to being quite a bargain. Um, plus, there's things that you're not going to get in other publications, um, like some of the anthology works, some of the books that collect people's letters, or sometimes nonfiction writing. Like, I think... I think it's one of the Edith Wharton novels, for instance, that has like an early autobiography she wrote that hasn't been published elsewhere, but it was published there. So sometimes you get added added value in that way as well. So I'm not going to pimp this series too much in, in this in this podcast, but from time to time, I just like to, to throw out my appreciation for, for what they have been doing, and I hope to keep doing it, and I am trying to collect them all as, as I have resources available, trying to buy as many as I can. So anyways, it's... It's good. And this particular volume, I think, is, is worth buying, mostly for, I think, uh, the Great Plains trilogy, Old Pioneers, The Song of the Lark, and My Antonia. Um, but, you know, the Troll Gardens is good, too. I didn't really care for one of ours too much. I, I didn't like the character. I had a hard time getting into it, and I had a hard time finishing it as well. It was actually quite a struggle for me. Um, but it, it's, it's still overall a, a worthwhile collection. I think Willa Cather is just so good on on the planes and so so good when she's writing about the planes and the tensions between what life there can provide and all its nuance and its complexity its diversity and its its challenges and its opportunities she's great on all that but she's at the same time very honest about its limitations and especially what it meant for the limitations in terms of art i think her strongest works examine that, uh, whether it was the narrator in Myotonia who felt really econ- intellectually constrained in, in Nebraska, or Antonia herself who gets sort of trapped there and becomes just a farm wife that becomes really her identity, or 
And the Song of the Lark is probably the best example of a character who is artistically quite gifted, but is very much trapped in, in that case, it was in Colorado. Old Pioneers, there was more of, more of the emotional, interpersonal uh, denial that the character had to, you know, basically had to reject a, a married life because she had to focus on the farm. And then you had all the stories in the Troll Gardens in which characters were either artists coming back to the West or maybe leaving the West or seeing people from the West that just there's a disconnect between the family they left behind or the family they're returning to and what they've achieved artistically and creatively. And I think that's very much how Willa Cather sees her own experience in her own life. So anyways, um, let's, let's, just, let's just wrap up here uh, what I want to say about one of ours. Um, I, I only have book five yet to talk about. It's, it's fairly lengthy. It's about 100 pages or so. So it's a, it's a little bit less than a third of the entire length of the novel. Book five. The previous two books were, quite, were actually quite short. So book five is called Biding the Eagles of the West Fly On. So th- this line seems to come from a, a Vachel Lindsay poem called The Campaign of 1896 is viewed at the time by 16-year-old etc. And uh, the, actually the poem's called Brian, 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 Brian. So it's the, the, the full stanza with this quote I'll just read for you. Uh, you can find this online too. So it's just a 16-year-old looking back on this election. Uh, so here's the stand. I'm not going to read the whole poem because it's fairly long, but this stanza starts, Oh, the Longhorns from Texas, Texas, the Jayhawks from Kansas, the plop-eyed bugaroo and giant gigasis, the varmint, chipmunk, and bugaboo, the homeward horde, prairie dog, and balahool, from the newborn states arose, biting the eagles of the west fly on, biting the, biting the eagles of the west fly on, the fawn, protodactyl, and the thingamajig, the rackador, the heligon, the wagadoodle, the bat fowl and pig, the coyote, wild cat, and grizzly in a glow, the miracle of health and speed, and the whole breed abreast. They leaped the Mississippi blue border in the west from the Gulf of Canada, 2,000 miles long, against the towns of Tubal Cain. Ah, sharp was their song, against the ways of Tubal Cain, too cunning for the youth. The longhorn calf, the buffalo, the wampus gave tongue. So, um, what to make of this? Well, you get all this kind of western lingo and and dialect in this poem you get the sense of a kind of a new land tied close to nature close to animals close to various uh, uh, other just natural phenomenon but then developing its own kind of way of talking about those things and the language right newborn they're described directly as newborn states the characters are contrasted to Tubal Cain. of course Tubal Cain is is briefly mentioned in the bible Uh, he's a descendant of Cain and He's um, often seen as kind of the industrialist of, of I guess, of early Bronze Age cultures or whatever, right? Um, I guess it's one of the part of the civilization that was destroyed with the flood um, in the Noah's Ark story, and then of course you have the the movie version, which makes does a lot more with the character of of Tubal Cain. Of course, this poem wouldn't have, have had any connection to that, um, but that story would would have been known by Christians. So anyway, I didn't actually read the whole poem. It's pretty long, but it's, it's interesting that this is there. It's about the West essentially. And although this entire section is set in, in France, this entire part of the book, one of ours is set in France. The main character is of course, from that frontier, that, that youthful frontier. And he's trying to, this character is trying to find his way in life. And he 
you know, finds it. He finds some purpose in life in France in in the struggle. But certainly that poem seems to have a lot of thoughts on like the political rhetoric of the West, right? The Western democracy. I don't know why Willa Cather quite included it, except for the, the general references to the West, or maybe she just like that line, um, the, which might connect, it seems to connect in some way to, to Claude Wheeler's own philosophy of life and his, uh, his approach to life at, at the end when he decides to go off to war. Right. And of course, biding the eagles of the West fly by, you know, you do have Claude from the West saying for the first time in his life goodbye to the West and then entering into a, a much larger conflict, much larger kind of uh, venue, and then finding some meaning for himself in a broader world. So it might be an argument against the parochialism that she sees so much in the West. And I think so as much as she seems to love the prairie and its scenes and, and what it offers and, and, you know, kind of the life of of kind of the farmer out west she's very conflicted by its parochialism its kind of smallness and those other aspects of, of life so anyways if you if you if you've been following along you know you know in the early part of the novel is basically we get a character study of claude who's this aimless restless young man full of wanderlust who eventually you know doesn't really like his schooling because he's going to a religious school he fights his family over uh, this religious upbringing. He's quite indifferent to religion. I wouldn't say he's an atheist, but he just doesn't really have that, that kind of commitment to the religious perspective. He eventually, as his father moves on to other business interests, they're quite wealthy. They have, you know, properties in Maine and Denver and businesses in Denver and the farm in Nebraska. So he eventually takes over the farm in Nebraska and he does start to be part of the innovation, the kind of the modernization of the American frontier. As this is going on, he marries a young woman na named Enid, and he marries her essentially because he seems he has to marry someone. He's not that close to her. They have a very difficult relationship, mostly because she's very religious, and she wants to pursue a life as a missionary, and she's, she's very much restless and aimless in her own way. Well, she's restless, not aimless, because she has the goal of, of, of missionary activities. But there's that focus of, of her life is to go to China to spread the gospel and eventually he just lets her go uh, and their marriage pretty much seems to break up we don't hear much more about it from that point on and he's she's also very interested in prohibition politics which is something that that wheeler isn't interested in either so we get some nice historical context on these issues of, of kind of the religious revivals of the 1920s um, which Catherine didn't write too much about in other stories and then the next thing that happens is the arrival of the war. The news, first news about the war, and we get an image of an immigrant community divided in loyalties, uh, divided in support for one side or indifference uh, because of all these, they all come from Europe, right? And the Europeans are in, in this conflict. So we have that going on. And then eventually when the U.S. enters the war, we get uh, a window into some of the, the suppression of free speech. And I talked about that in the last episode, how we see people get brought before judges for you know, statements they make, you know, pro-German or anti-American or anti-British, whatever. And then eventually Claude decides he is going to serve in the military and, and that's going to be his aim in life. Then he gets on the boat and he has a bunch of adventures on the boat, mostly involving the death of, of crewmates and meeting people from other parts of the world and from different backgrounds. And then in book five, he's in France. And at this point, the novel becomes essentially a, a story of, of war and he goes on different adventures. Uh, 
different he meets different people. He actually rises to become he's head of a uni, becomes a lieutenant. So this is set actually sometime later after he's arrived in France. And essentially what goes on here is he sees war. He sees the cost of war. He sees a lot of refugees and the people affected profoundly by the conflict. Uh, and then he sees France and he sees the French people and he sees their struggles. And he starts to really romanticize the French countryside and the French land. And of course, he comes from a rural area as well, but he didn't feel tied to it. Here he's seen a countryside under great stress, under the stress of, of war. And he starts to romanticize that and he starts to understand the struggle of the French people and their sacrifice. And he starts to honor that. And he has this almost, this is where the novel, I think for me, becomes a little bit troubling because it has an almost fascistic kind of fascination with kind of blood and soil and sacrifice and war. And the fact that it's war that gives Claude Wheeler meaning is a very disturbing thing. Uh, there's so much this character could have done with his life. He was fairly intelligent. He has some creativity. I wouldn't say he's the most creative person because he doesn't quite know where to direct his, his restlessness. But he has potential, and he was a good manager of a farm and all that. All, all he had, you know, he got married. He had a lot of different ways to find meaning in his life, and instead he finds it really in, in war. And eventually he dies in a battle, and, and that's, that's the novel. That's essentially the novel. But I want to focus on kind of the romanticization of the French countryside. Quote, all the way down, Company B had been finding the old things instead of the new, or to their way of thinking, the new things instead of the old. The thatched roofs that so counted upon seeing were few and far between. But American binders of well-known makes stood where the fields were beginning to ripen, and they were being oiled and put in order, not by peasants, but by wise-looking old farmers who seemed to know their business. Pear trees trained, um, trained like vines against the wall did not astonish them half so much as the sight of their familiar cottonwood growing everywhere. Claude thought he had never before realized how beautiful this tree could be. In verdant little valleys along the clear rivers, the cottonwoods waved and rustled, and on the little islands, of which there were so many in these rivers, they stood in pointed mass, seemed to grip deep into the soil and to rest easy. And if they had ever been there forever, and they would be there forevermore, at home, all about Frankfort, the farmers were cutting down the cottonwoods because they were common, planting maples and ash trees to struggle against the steed. Never mind, the cottonwoods were good enough for France, and they were good enough for him. He felt there were a real bond between him and his people. End quote. There's a lot of going on here in this kind of tension between the old world and the new world, too. And that's another theme going on here. Claude experiences a frontier that's being modernized and becoming basically a, a an adjunct of the capitalist system, right? It already had been, basically, by the time Claude was a youth. But he was actually part of this when he managed the farm, right? So he saw the frontier become just an adjunct of the capitalist system. The land is just there to produce resources, right? If we think back to Frank Norris's, which I looked at really early in this series, you know, the octopus. In that novel, you have, you know, the you know, the land becoming no longer a place of life, a place of identity or culture. Culture's not grounded in it. Instead, it's just a business. Now, Claude, whether he's right or not, I mean, I don't know enough about French rural capitalism and industry in <laughs> during World War One or during the early 20th century to comment on whether his observations are accurate or not. Or, if you know, I'm not even sure Catheter knows enough to really comment on it. But what we have here is this idea that in the old world, there's a very different relationship with the land. 
much more emotional, much more tied, right? And the, the cottonwoods become a symbol of that. The Americans cut off the cottonwoods for more efficient crops. Uh, the French keep them because they're part of the land. They're part of the, the, the setting. And that's a theme we see again and again and again in this, this book five of, of one of ours, is Claude always going back to this view of the frontier as, or not the frontier, this view of the land as a place of identity, something that roots people into place, something worth fighting for, something worth struggling for. And that's what he feels is lacking in the American West. And there we get to essentially the thesis of, of the book. The problem with this, of course, is this romanticization of the land, uh, kind of a mysticism with the land almost. It's this idea that we must defend the land and fight for it. And this idea that somehow progress in agriculture is something to be scorned or looked down upon, right? Now, the reason we have a world today that you know, what, 7 billion people on the planet, we can feed 10 billion. And, you know, yeah, it's still like a billion people go hungry. And that's uh, solely due to uh, distribution and poverty and inequality and all kinds of things that are easily fixable. But, you know, we have post-scarcity in food, right? That's because we didn't romanticize land, that we see land as, you know, a, you know something that science can be applied to and something that we can you know, make more productive, something we can make more efficient. It's the same with the ecologists in a way. I, you know, the solution to the ecological crisis is not going to be something about romanticizing the land and falling in love with nature and loving insects. That doesn't hurt, I guess, to love animals and insects and the land. It doesn't hurt, I suppose, but the solution to the ecological problem is going to be scientific. It's going to be found in the lab, right? It's not you know, the way, way we can really get rid of, like, the suffering of animals is not to love cows so much and to care for them and keep them as pets or some ridiculous thing like that. It's it's the lab-grown meat, right? We're going to find meat alternatives someday that are going to be more sustainably produced. That is the the solution. It, it doesn't come out of this dreamy gazing at the, at the countryside. And that is that's where I think this novel falls flat for me now, or at least isn't very applicable to, I think, our current... It's not very useful in our current environment. That said, I do think this is probably a realistic portrayal of how some people maybe experienced France and how people often to this day experience, you know... They, they go, like Americans who go to Europe and they, they find, they come back with this new perspective on history or a new perspective on time, a new perspective on, on the land, right? Yeah, it's a lot, a lot of it's going to be romanticized because they don't really come from those cultures. They don't understand what's really going on. They're just tourists. And actually, Cather seems to hint at this from time to time by making Claude a very inartful speaker of French. Um, of course, they have to speak to the local people in French and he eventually learns, but, you know, it's, it's a struggle for him. Now, the two groups of people that have the biggest effect on Claude while he's in France are the fellow soldiers, especially one called uh, Gerhardt, who has a deep uh, influence on him. Now, he's always kind of, throughout Claude's life, now, throughout Claude's life, he gravitated to certain people who seemed to fill a hole in his life. And, and in school, there was one group person. Later on, it was maybe Gladys, maybe his wife for a brief moment. Here, it's this Gerhardt becomes the person he kind of looks up to and the person he gets inspired by. And uh, here's a quote that, that seems to suggest that. 
Quote, one night he dreamed he was at home, out on the plowed fields, where he could see nothing but the furrowed brown earth stretching from horizon to horizon. Up and down it moved a boy with a plow and two horses. At first he thought it was his brother Ralph, but on coming near he saw it was himself. He was full of fear for the boy. Poor Claude! He would never, never get away. He was going to miss everything. Well, he was struggling to speak to Claude and warn him he woke. In the years he went to school in Lincoln, he was always hunting for someone who he could admire without reservation, someone he could envy, emulate, and wish to be. Now he believed that even then he must have had some faint image of a man like Gerhardt in his mind. It was only in war times that the paths would be likely to cross, or that they would have anything to do together, any of the common interests that make men friends. Now, the other group that seems to really inspire him are the French people and the suffering of the French people and their sacrifice. And he actually also meets some like Belgian refugees. And there's some interesting stuff here to explore, but I don't really want to talk too much more about one of ours. There's a whole lot going on in the final section. There's stuff about art and music. Uh, Gerhard plays the violin, for instance. There's a lot on his interactions with the French. If you want to dissect it as an account of a foreign army dealing with the local population, there's a lot of that going on as well. Essentially what happens though is he, you know, he's, he has some battles and a lot of his fellow soldiers die and eventually he has the chance for his grand, you know, victorious moment at the end and he dies. And I think he's just sort of like missing at the, at the end of the novel. And then the final scene of the novel is back in Nebraska. It's very much like the Song of the Lark in that way, where you have a character going off doing her own thing, eventually reaching greatness. Now here it's more a delusional type of greatness. In the Song of Larks, it's really true greatness yeah, achieved through art. But then the final scene is then back. The parents, the family, uh, you know, ref you know, back home alone, <laughs> you know, dealing with that, the, the lack of, of that child or that, that individual. So that's, that's pretty much all I want to say about um, uh, one of ours. It's just I did really, I just had a hard time getting into this one. So sorry about that. If you liked one of ours, though, please, please leave me your, your thoughts about it, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Again, I apologize for, for having not as much to say as I, I perhaps should have. It, I think that novel does have value. It wouldn't be the first I would recommend of Willow Cather, to be sure. But if you're, if you're like me, if you're reading through her works, I mean, it's something to grapple with. She did win the Pulitzer Prize for it. I think, um, I think the, the Nebraska stuff is fairly good. And I just find Claude such an odious and frustrating character. Now, just let me quickly review the themes in this novel. Uh, certainly the changing frontier, the changing of the prairie from farmers, uh, immigrant farmers, kind of subsistence farmers to capitalist farming is a big theme here. That's actually throughout of Cath throughout all of Cather's work. So it's nothing specifically uh, new about that in this account. It, it's kind of, by this point, if you've been reading her works, you know her feelings on this. Uh, another theme certainly would be marriage. Um, now, this marriage, we, we study really through the eyes of Claude. Uh, we've seen her look at marriages very problematically in Mayontania, um, and to a degree in The Song of the Lark. The conflict between marriage and, I guess, freedom is something that she struggles with. Antonia, for instance, is, is not free, uh, and she's married. Uh, that's not an insignificant. Uh, Song of the Lark. Thea is free partially because she, she's not able to marry. She chooses not to marry, right? Or at least she establishes herself before she marries. She is married by the end of the, on the, on the novel. But the idea that there's a conflict between individual freedom and individual ambitions, whether it's 
whether it's going to China to, to be a missionary or to die in France or to be an artist, whatever it is, there does seem to be that conflict. It actually goes back to one of the early troll garden, garden stories, the one about the Garden Lodge, right, where, where marriage and, and kind of running a family gets in the way of, of artistic ambitions. Um, there's a lot in here on religion. It's not something Catherine wrote a lot about directly, as I recall, thinking back to the other works. It's, it wasn't on the, her focus. But here we really see the rise of kind of evangelical fundamentalist politics, right, and the politicization of religion, something that really did happen in the 1920s. Um, my, my, remember, my memory from, from U.S. history was that in the 20s you had a growing cultural conflict, right? Catherine was writing about the front, the, the prairie and the farms and the rural areas, right? But a lot of other writers were focusing more on the urban, right? Fitzgerald, for instance, a very urban writer. And you end up with this concept, what we now call flyover country, right? That most of America is just neglected. And what really matters is the modern industrial side of things. And that's where the exciting stories take place. And then a lot of people feel left behind, right? And this one result of this is, is political and the rise of political of Christianity, right? So what we don't call fundamentalism. I think actually the term fundamentalism had its roots in the 1920s um, as, as a movement. And of the big victory of the, of the movement of this political Christianity at the time was the prohibition movement, which was, of course, successful. It did successfully ban alcohol sales um, for, you know, a number of years until 1933. So that... Uh, that is all talked about here. We see it really with the character of Enid, Enid and her ambition to be a missionary and her, active, her participation in politics. We also see it in the tension between uh, Claude Wheeler's education. I guess that's another theme we could throw in here is education. It's something Catherine seems to be interested in. Most of her characters are do get some education and, and, and have that schooling, and she writes a lot about the educational process. Here we have the closest... We have Claude is more indifferent to his own education because he, does, he resents being at the at the temple school, at the Christian school. He he takes classes in Lincoln at the at the university. You know, he even writes his thesis on Joan of Arc. So there's a religious taint even to his his thesis. So he, religion or, or education doesn't have this liberatory effect that maybe had for for Thea or um, or Emile in in Old Pioneers. Um, what else here? War, of course, war is a theme. Uh, the land is a is very much a theme of this novel as well. I think diversity and is is another one I would focus on here. The diversity of the soldiery going fighting in World War One, the the way war brings people together from different backgrounds is something she she focuses on, especially in the second half of the book. But also how the diverse parts of America dealt with World War One and dealt with the politics of the war and the experience of war. You know, especially I think there's a really wonderful chapter here where you have actually a sedition trial where someone is fined and, and punished for essentially exercising his free speech. And, and so the contra contradiction between the war and free speech. I don't know if Catherine is being overtly political. She's kind of matter of fact about how she presents that. I don't know her own feelings about uh, the suppression of civil liberties during World War One, or if it was something that's really on her radar, but she did have this scene. So it, it suggests she, it's something she was thinking about. So I guess that does it. I didn't really make a list this time, so I don't have... Um, I'm probably missing a lot again, but, you know, it's, it's worth taking a look at, I guess, if, if you really need something to read. But I, I think these are themes that Catherine more or less gets 
looks at in other contexts a little bit better. I, I'd really recommend Song of a Lark before I look at one of ours for the story of someone who can't find their way in their hometown and therefore has to venture venture out. Um, so I, I guess that's uh, that does it. That's that's what I'm going to say about about one of ours. And I guess that's what I'm going to say about Willa Cather. I, I think she's really, I'm really glad I picked her up. I, I hesitated at first. I knew I wanted to look at a woman for the new series that I, that I started after I looked at those African-American writers. I didn't know which one I was going to look at. I, I was thinking of Edith Wharton at the time, but I decided because I was going, going to spend the summer in Wisconsin. I wanted a more Midwesty author. So that's why I picked Willa Cather. I never had read her before, but I was a bit intimidated by it at first, especially when I read The Troll Gardens. But she grew on me, especially uh, with The Song of the Lark and My Antonia, which are my favorite novels of of this collection. So, I don't know. I So, check her out if you haven't uh, yet. So, what's what's coming up next? Well, it, it depends. I, I, I My plan is to look at uh, for the rest of the summer before I go back to Taiwan. It's now August, or it's now July 21st, and I I leave Wisconsin around uh, the 14th of, of August. So actually, if you think of it that way, I have quite a bit of time to look at just one novel. Uh, I'm going to look at Theodore Dreiser's American Tragedy. That's the plan, anyways. I don't own a copy of it, though, so I have to get it done from the library copy, um, which I think is possible. I have a lot of, uh, I'm distracted a lot here, though, and I have a lot of things to do with my daughter, a lot of little plans, so they get in the way. But because of that, I've decided to focus on a shorter volume, one that just had one work. It's about 800 or 900 pages, and one novel that I could just kind of dissect over a series of, of episodes. So the plan is to do Theodore Dreiser's American Tragedy uh, next. So if you're reading along, you can pick it up um, and and start reading that. If I don't do that, then it'll be pretty much a hiatus. I'll be taking on this podcast and I'll be focused on the Philip K. Dick uh, book club for the rest of my time in Wisconsin. I haven't yet made a decision. I'll have to see where I'm at in a few days. So that's what's coming up. Um, thanks as always for listening and supporting this podcast and sorry for, for kind of uh, uh, being a bit lazy with, with one of ours. I, I didn't uh, kind of go into as much detail as I do some of my other works. But, uh, you know, I hope I gave you enough to make a judgment whether you want to read it or think about it or include it into your your literary repertoire. So um, with that, I'm going to sign off. Uh, thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time, hopefully with Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy. Yeah.